You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by former Deputy Director of National Intelligence, Sue Gordon, and Admiral Mike Mullen, formerly Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We're going to be talking about the U.S. and Taiwan based on a bipartisan independent task force report that they chaired from the Council on Foreign Relations, which has just been released. Uh, welcome to Admiral Mullen and to, to Sue Gordon. Good to have you. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. Hi, David. Great to see so, you. Uh, let's uh, jump in, and I'm going to ask Sue to s set the stage as, as we start. Sue, the United States has supported since 1972 what we call the One China Policy, uh, which has been ambiguous about the ultimate status of China, how it would be uh, become one one country. Uh, but your, your report says that that longstanding status quo is now uh, uh, threatened. And I want to ask you to explain to our audience why that is. What's changed? Um, so I, I think you're right on the top line. You'd have to argue that the fact that we've had peace suggests that our policy um, has been successful at that level. Um, but, but I think when we look at the situation, um, not only uh, what's going on globally, where Taiwan's mindset is, but most ex explicitly where, chi where China is going, um, I, think, I think you see that that deterrence that has been so successful uh, seems to be eroding. And when you look at China, I, I think there are four things. Number one is Xi's statements all on his own. He has been very clear that reunification is an important uh, element of his legacy, one that he doesn't believe can be passed on. Uh, the second is just his investment in his military and direct statements that his military needs to be ready by 2027. And again, I'm not saying 2027 is any magical date, but it is an intention that his military needs to be ready. I think their broad global expansionism, particularly in the South China Sea, is another example. And then finally, just their coercive acts against Taiwan that I think suggest that what has held is being marginalized or minimized over time. And uh, that creates the potential that if we don't attend to it, you could find yourself in a situation that's unimaginable, which would be war on uh, with with China over Taiwan. Mike, I want to turn to you with, with this question about the, the failure of the status quo, and particularly the failure of deterrence. Do you take uh, the, the argument that she is preparing, has instructed the PLA to be prepared? to attack uh, Taiwan by 2027 uh, seriously as, as a, a, a plausible threat that he could actually deliver? I think, David, uh, what's different is 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 Xi's uh, um, outward statements, uh, very, very different from his predecessors. So as Sue has outlined, he's been very clear that uh, he can't pass this on. He's told his military to be ready by 27, uh, et cetera. Um, and so you have to take it very seriously. And he's backed that up with, a, I think, a tremendously coercive set of actions from the military standpoint, whether it's the kind of uh, flights 
you know, in and around Taiwan or the blockade type exercises. I mean, the message is is loud and clear. The, the other really important part of the status quo discussion is how the context has changed uh, in Taiwan itself. Uh, I, I, far removed from the 70s, uh, uh, as you suggested, when this policy went into, uh, in, into place, uh, the Taiwanese people are much more focused and supportive of democracy in their future. They have a booming economy centered on the semiconductor industry, which is uh, the, really the center mass of, of semiconductors for the world, not, not just uh, in the region or for the U.S. Uh, and China. Uh, and I think we have to take that uh, very much into consideration. And then lastly, uh, they've looked at what happened in in Hong Kong, where there was going to be, you know, one country, two systems, and that's sort of gone by the wayside. So the message from China uh, is uh, is very clear, uh, and the context of what's happened in terms of deterrence, which has worked so far, uh, has dramatically changed. So Mike and Sue both, uh, an audience uh, member of ours, Faye Kleeman, who's from Colorado, poses the basic question in the starkest terms. Uh, she asks, will China invade Taiwan? If so, when and how? Just on that very direct question, what would be your answers? Uh, let me ask Sue to start. Yeah, I'll say the only person that knows the answer to that question is she, right? So, uh, and so the question is, and really the problem that we're addressing is, how do you affect that calculus? Right. So far, he has decided not to. We want to keep that decision in place. His action suggests that he is readying so that he could decide. By no means is it a sure thing. Um, uh, a, a military action against Taiwan is, is not easy, and I'll have Mike talk more about that. He certainly looked at what was happening in Ukraine and has considered how difficult that has been for Russia, and then trying to put that in his own situation. But I will say that we don't know when or if he will decide. What we do know is that he is acting as though he is moving closer to the ability to do it. And our interest is in the United States and Taiwan and our allies trying to create the condition that that isn't the decision he makes today. Mike, uh, the Chinese famously, quoting their strategist Sun Tzu 2,500 years ago, like to win wars without fighting. Why on earth would she invade across the Strait of Taiwan and what would be a bloody disaster for China? Is that really realistic? Well, it's the toughest military operation I'm aware of is to have an amphibious landing. And that is one part of at least what we think from a possible scenario uh, would occur at some point in time, he'd have to go ashore. I think his current strategy is to try to put so much pressure uh, on Taiwan that they sort of put their hands up and say, okay, we'll, we'll come aboard. But that's increasingly uh, challenging for him because of what I said before in terms of the Taiwanese people supporting uh, democracy. Uh, I think part of it, as Sue said before, is his legacy. He's very clear in that regard uh, that, uh, that he wants to resolve this. Uh, most assessments indicate that his military isn't ready to do that yet, uh, 
That said, and, I, and it, this isn't just about Xi Jinping, I think any Chinese leader, if they think they're going to lose Taiwan, would result uh, or resort to force to make sure that didn't happen. And certainly Xi Jinping is at the top of the list uh, with respect to that. That's why being strong, both internally in Taiwan from a defense standpoint, in terms of uh, as well as our support and our ally support to make sure that uh, any given day, uh, she is deterred and knows that he can't win it if he tries to take Taiwan by force. So I want to ask you both about uh, a core uh, strategic question that your task force looked at, but uh, you say you were unable to reach consensus about. And, and that's the question of whether we should maintain what's called the policy of strategic ambiguity where we never quite say that we would be prepared to come to Taiwan's defense. Uh, P President Biden has, has made statements, but they're quickly uh, uh, adjusted afterwards so, so as to preserve this ambiguity. Or instead, we should move to a policy of st strategic clarity where we make clear if China attacks Taiwan, we will come to, to Taiwan's defense, much as we've pledged to do with Japan and, and South Korea. I know that your group as a whole wasn't able to reach a consensus. I wonder if each of you would be willing to say what your own view is on which course is wisest. Let me ask Mike to start. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think the fact that we couldn't and didn't come to consensus is instructive, uh, uh, David. My, my own position on that, and this comes out of uh, visiting Taiwan a year ago, March, uh, that uh, ambiguity has worked very well, uh, and uh, th there's no uh, incredibly clear indication that we should change that policy at this particular point in time. I worry, quite frankly, that if we move to strategic clarity, we actually move closer to the possibility of war, and that's just my personal view. Uh, I also think the decision, I'm sorry, the, the policy discussion with respect to this is probably a little bit overhyped in terms of making a difference one way or another. Uh, one of the reasons I think that this study is so important is there's a lot of information about this incredibly complex situation uh, embedded in the study itself that even I didn't understand because I, when I was serving, I was focused on obviously the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so th there's a great deal to be learned about the history here, the current situation, uh, and I just didn't think the decision with respect to this policy uh, was uh, was that compelling one way or another. Yeah. Let me just underline what uh, Adam Mullen, uh, uh, Attorney Mullen, just underline what Adam Mullen said. This report is unusual in just how detailed and helpful it is in thinking about the basics. Sue, what about that basic question? Do you think strategic clarity would provide uh, greater deterrence or is it a mistake? Uh, so my opinion, a lot like Mike comes from a recent visit I, I made to Taiwan and talking to their leaders. And I think I, I, think I was maybe surprised. We asked the question directly um, about you know, the strategic ambiguity still working or strategic clarity, the right answer. And their answer, at least to us, was, was I would say, um, the words aren't as important as being clear with your actions on specific areas, being clear with us 
um, being clear with the allies, being clear um, even with China diplomatically on the one side of policy. So, so I think it has worked as Mike said. I do think what you got in the report with our specificity was trying to take US interests and being sure that we were not being unclear about those interests and what our actions would be around them. Um, we've, Mike and I have talked about this and the whole group did is any change from the path we're on is probably going to increase some friction. But there are sets of things that we believe needed to be done, not necessarily confronting the issue directly, but ensuring that all the members of this triumvirate and even beyond that with our allies are well positioned against their interests. So I'm told that when U.S. Uh, diplomats, national security officials meet with senior Chinese officials and state that we continue to uh, abide by the one China policy, their response is that they think that we're hollowing out that policy. We still say the words, but we don't really mean them so much anymore. We, we arm Taiwan. We um, have growing bipartisan support for Taiwan and even Taiwanese independence among among some members of Congress. So what do you th think? How would you answer that Chinese criticism made to Jake Sullivan and Secretary Blinken? Your, your one China policy is hollowed out. It's not real. How would you answer that? Uh, I'm always very hesitant to, to assume that I know what someone else is thinking. I can I can see how some actions would make them believe that the what the U.S. intentions are um, different from perhaps what we're saying. But I also think that's a pretty convenient statement for them to make as a way to govern our actions to keep the advantage in their court. And we haven't even, and to keep us on the back foot, not commenting about their actions that actually are increasing the tensions, are actually moving toward a non-peaceful outcome that I think when they pressure us and make statements about what we're doing, it is in a way to deflect against their actions and to keep us in a smaller box than perhaps we need to be. Good, good point. They, they do seem to have us bargaining with ourselves as people yes. often are able to, to do. Mike, uh, one of the fascinating things about this report is that it, it includes additional views from a number of your fellow task force members. And I was struck by one in particular I wanted to ask you about. Two of your panel members argue in these additional views that the U.S. should alleviate Chinese uh, anxieties about Taiwan by signaling that it's prepared to accept a peaceful unification eventually, if that's what China and Taiwan want, and that it wouldn't rule out future dialogue with China about options uh, for the future of Taiwan. What do you think of that argument that we can maybe deter and deflect China by talking to them? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, this is, uh, Taiwan, I think, is the central issue uh, between China and the United States. Uh, one, two, the two leaders, the two presidents have 
to discuss and guide us in this. If we just leave it up to the staffs, if you will, uh, I, I think we will continue on this road that I actually the phrase I've used is drifting into war. So it is absolutely critical. Uh, we say in the report that Taiwan is a vital strategic interest. Uh, it is also, I think, imperative that our president uh, educate Americans about why this is so important. When you have democracy and freedom threatened there, uh, and if we were to make a decision to go to war to support Taiwan, that's something the American people have to be uh, very much in favor of uh, in, in that regard. Your question actually focuses on what and what we say in the report is we're very supportive of the one China policy that that seeks peaceful, a peaceful resolution uh, to this cross strait uh, issues. Uh, and that's what we want to do. Again, leaders have to do that. And then lastly, I would just say this, it goes back to the status quo. Part of what we have to do with our allies, quite frankly, uh, is take steps to improve deterrence and show strength uh, because China has been so coercive in the diplomatic arena, in the economic arena, in the military arena as well with respect to Taiwan. That has to be rebalanced in order to have a status quo, to get to the peaceful reunification prospect, if you will, to, to be resolved by the Taiwanese people uh, and by China. Sue, I want to ask you to comment about what's been in the headlines uh, recently. Uh, Secretary Blinken's trip to Beijing, the first trip by a Secretary of State in five years, which followed uh, what apparently was a very positive meeting that uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had with Wang Yi, the top Chinese diplomat in Vienna uh, a month before. So we seem to be on the road toward what you could call a kind of reset with China, resuming uh, the idea not simply of, of dialogue, but cooperation on issues of mutual interest. Uh, on the road toward a Xi visit to San Francisco, probably in November. Um, you could say uh, on the road toward toward a reduction in, in tensions, uh, some, some de-escalation in the relationship. Does that seem like the right course to you? And do you think China um, can be believed in some of these professions of, of willingness to, to have dialogue? Well, I think it'll, one, I think it's a good thing. Uh, talking is a good thing. Peace is a good thing. War with China over Taiwan I, is so bad, not only in terms of lives, uh, any lives lost, but just the econo global economic impact would be massive. It would make the pandemic impact seem like a speed bump comparatively. So diplomatic outreach, conversation, trying to reduce tensions are all good things. Um, as I say, part of this is just to forestall any decision so we can keep on working on the conditions is good. I do think, and one of the things I hope the listeners uh, hear is that this will not be a straight line progression, right? even when we have more diplomatic relations, there will be some action 
we take. For example, if the administration were to follow through on one of our recommendations of a bilateral training agreement with Taiwan, I can absolutely imagine there would be some visit canceled or some counter um, positioning. So great that we're on this path. I, I think it is an important element of any deterrence strategy. The American people should not overreact to negative statements along that path because they are going to happen. And again, uh, to keep an eye on what our vital national interests are uh, and not give those up along the way. One of the interesting statements in your report uh, is that, uh, I'm quoting here, the U.S. should avoid symbolic political and diplomatic gestures that provoke a Chinese response but do not meaningfully improve Taiwan's defensive capabilities, unquote. Um, forgive me for being blunt, that sounds like a perfect description of former Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. It was a symbolic action that I think most analysts would say left Taiwan in a weaker position than it was. So, Mike, let me be blunt. If Speaker Pelosi had come to you before that trip and asked, should I do this, what would you have told her? Well, I think that uh, I think that is the intent. And, and while Speaker Pelosi actually has long standing with respect to China, uh, and particularly with respect to human rights, meaning she's been uh, all over them since Tiananmen Square. Uh, so I'm not sure it was as as symbolic uh, as as it stated, but clearly those kind that kind of visit, uh, as well as uh, the visit with Speaker McCarthy, though it were here by Tsai Ing-wen, the current president uh, uh, of Taiwan, uh, they uh, oftentimes, uh, they, they just stir up the rhetoric and, and they get in the way of making any progress. And so we'd like to see that uh, basically go away and that these issues be worked you know, behind closed doors in a quiet way where people were not would not be embarrassed and we could actually, you know, make some progress. And so that's one of the reasons that we and, and I think we had consensus across the board uh, with the uh, with the, the individuals who were on this task force with respect to that. So would, would you as a former senior intelligence officer have told the, the speaker, uh, Madam Speaker, don't do it. Not good. I think I am even stronger now, given where we see um, the situation is we will probably create friction with any action, make sure that that friction is worth some viable, tangible strengthening of either the relationship, the resilience, or the deterrence. And if it isn't doing one of those, then I would stay away from it. This is just a bit too hot to be making gestures that don't have specific outcome. That's, that's, that's helpful. So let me turn to a, a part of the report that I found especially provocative, but also somewhat troubling. Uh, again, I'm gonna quote specifically from the report. You argue that, uh, U.S. Should, should place the U.S. defense industrial base on a wartime footing now to ensure that the U.S. military has the capabilities it needs to deter Chinese aggression. I read that and I thought, really? That sounds to me like a recipe for war. If I was sitting in Beijing and I saw the U.S. 
put its defense industrial base on a wartime footing, I'd think, well, they're going to war. That's what they're doing. So why is that a good idea? Let me let me start with Mike and then ask Sue to answer the same question. I think what that really gets at is how far behind we have been in supplying the kind of support uh, in the the from the weapon standpoint uh, with respect to Taiwan over the years uh, is one. Secondly, uh, they, they're uh, basically supplied weapons through the what we call the FMS system, which is a very difficult, slow, bureaucratic uh, acquisition system. Uh, and my own view on this, David, is and, and there is uh, as we you know became much more aware during the pandemic. Uh, the Defense Production Act, which allows the president to put the defense industry on a wartime footing, quote unquote, in order to produce much more quickly and cut through uh, an, an awful lot of the bureaucracy and produce output very quickly, which is what we need. Uh, I would much rather have this discussion uh, before conflict broke out in terms of becoming much stronger and having much more of an impact from a deterrent standpoint than I would, okay, now war has started, uh, let's uh, enact uh, the Defense Production Act to make sure that we can catch up. Uh, there's certainly risk associated with that. I think there's increased risk almost with any step you take with respect to Taiwan. But the whole message is we've got to get the defense system, the defense industry, moving much more quickly to support the contingencies that, that are out there in the Western Pacific with respect to Taiwan. And it is mostly to ensure that we're strong and that we can deter the war that we don't want to have. Sue, do you have any concerns about, about the, the signals that putting us on a wartime footing uh, would send it to China in a way in which that could increase the likelihood of conflict? I have no doubt, as Mike does, uh, that those uh, actions would be seen and they would be reflected back to us exactly as you say, David. But but I think Mike said it so well and so eloquently. Uh, I'll be more simplistic because that's the way I roll. And that is, if it came to conflict today, we would wish that we had done everything in our power to be ready. And so I think that this is why you have to have the diplomatic relations. You have to have Taiwan making some decisions for itself and you have to work with our allies and partners because we may hope that conflict doesn't happen, but boy, if it comes to that, we will want to have done everything in our power to be prepared. Well said. I'm going to close with a, a quick question. We only got uh, less than two minutes. Uh, it's a big question, but uh, quick answers. So uh, what do each of you think uh, the Ukraine war has done to impact President Xi's thinking about Taiwan? Uh, Mike, let me ask you to start. Sobering. Obviously, lots of people uh, from, from the Taiwan perspective, uh, uh, in one way, um, a reminder that it's great when people stand up to fight for their country. It's it's also encouraging that other countries would show up and support. Uh, China hasn't been in a war since the 50s. Uh, war never goes as predicted. 
so in that regard, it's dangerous uh, and I think very instructive. Sue, what do you think she's uh, takeaway from Ukraine is? Exactly that. Um, I don't know if he ever thought it would be easy. Um, he is certainly well aware of uh, the strengths and less so of his military forces, how complex that would be. And then he looks at Ukraine, which many would have thought would have been a relatively simple um, operation for Russian forces and look what it's turned into. So I think it is sobering is a great word, Mike. Um, I would say, man, it gives you pause. And we would, I would expect to see redoubling of his own internal efforts to try and overcome some potential weaknesses that he has in his own fighting force. Great uh, conversation. Uh, again, I, I would urge our, our viewers to take a look at this report if they can find it from the Council on Foreign Relations, a task force on what arguably is our country's most important foreign policy challenge going forward. Thanks to Admiral Mike Mullen and to Sue Gordon, a former Deputy Director of National Intelligence, for joining us. Thanks for, thanks for being with us. Great. Thanks, thanks, David. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.